Hello and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, your co-host and moderator for this episode. Joining me is someone phoning from home, Lily. Why, hello there. And also joining us is another creature that lives off Reese's Pieces and Cores, Sean. That's right. <laughs> Good evening. Well, this week we watched Atari Game Over, the first original documentary in Xbox Live's Signal to Noise series. This documentary is about the rise and fall of Atari Incorporated, the colossal commercial failure of E.T. the Game, and the legend of the burial of unsold E.T. cartridges in a New Mexico landfill. This is a fantastic documentary. Yeah, if, if you are a documentary junkie... This is definitely one that you don't want to let slip by you. And even if you don't enjoy the genre in particular, this is funny enough and engaging enough where you'll be like, oh, this is really awesome and interesting, like like me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to, to note before we start our review that anyone who's watching Atari Game Over, which is on Netflix right now, and might be just for who knows how much longer. So, And I think Xbox Live, too, if you have that. Yeah, I think that's the genre, the the system it came on originally. So just keep in mind that there are some curse words in this documentary. Oh, uh, yes. At least three or four times, I believe. And they're the big curse words. <laughs> yes. Um, not just the D-A-M-N word, but a bunch of other bad words. Who's so, Damon? Damon. <laughs> so just keep that in mind if you have children. Don't think you can just throw us on with your 8-year-old or 5-year-old. Unless you curse around them regularly, then feel free. Yeah, light up a cigarette, put them on your knee, and enjoy. Give them some whiskey. <laughs> good times. Oh, my God. But this was, yeah, it was a great documentary. I had heard good things going into it. And it's only an hour, which I was surprised about. But now that I see that it's part of, like, a series, it's almost like uh, ESPN has had a lot of success with their 30 for 30 series. So I think these shorter documentaries are starting to gain traction. This is the very first one. It was pretty great. Especially since it really talks about the start of Atari. It's not just about this landfill, which is very interesting in itself, but it goes through the whole environment that was Atari and how it had this like, really stellar growth within a couple of years of its creation. And then with the crash of the video game industry in 1983... Talks about how Atari basically was a major victim in that. I oh, yeah. See, I wasn't alive in that time. Was that really a crash in general for video games because of this one company? I mean, you had things after that, like, I don't know, ColecoVision or um, it's like N-Television or something. Yeah, well, I mean, they had an eight, what was it, an 80% share of the market. So anything that affected Atari affected video games in general. That's true. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to ask before we, we start, did any of you guys have uh, any Atari consoles growing up? <laughs> I missed the boat for the Atari consoles, but I always heard, you know, my dad talking about it with such nostalgia, <laughs> you know, loading up Pitfall or you know, Adventure or something like that. But I was the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 era. I remember wasting countless hours playing Crash Bandicoot or The Italian Job. So. Wow. Yeah. 
Now, Sean, did you have any Ataris? Well, you know, I am the eldest of all three of us, and I didn't have the Atari 2600, which I think when you say Atari, that's what most people think of. It's the 2600. Yeah. That's like their premier console. I remember seeing when I was young, this is early 80s, many people that had Ataris, and I remember playing the Atari quite often, but I never had one myself. My first real console... And I still remember getting it to this day. It was in um, 1985 with an uh, NES, original Nintendo. Oh, wow. And that's what I played in when I was seven years old in 1985. So I-, I have played the Atari quite a bit, but never owned it myself. I actually had a 2600 growing up. Wow. Uh, I was born much later than the release of the 2600, but for some reason my aunt came back from a trip to visit her husband's relatives and this must have been 1988, 1989, and she brought me back, I guess, their junk that they didn't want anymore. So I had an old TV, it was my first television, an Atari 2600, all the paddles and joysticks, Kaboom, Pitfall, Berserk, Defender, The Empire Strikes Back, Frogger, most of the classics. It was pretty neat, and uh, that was my game console. I kind of had a uh, early 80s experience with video games in the early 90s. That's awesome. A, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was definitely the console I have before, I would say, the NES. When that came out in 84, 85, yeah. that was the one that really, I mean, the graphics were so much, and the gameplay was so much better than the Atari. And the Atari had crashed pretty much at that point. So, but before that, the Atari was king. And that's what, if you read about the video game crash of 83, that's basically why it happened. It just got so big, and you had all these competitors that started creeping up. ColecoVision, like you said, Lily, and a bunch of other ports of Atari, or clones of Atari, that it just got oversaturated. Yeah. Well, Atari um, was really just ports of coin-operated games. Basically, yeah. 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 And, and some terrible ones at that. Like, I had the, <laughs> I had the Pac-Man coin-operated port, mm-hmm. and it was terrible. And it, it sold great. Like, I mean, as we go through this, pretty much everything they put out was, like, sold a yeah. million copies. But that doesn't mean they were great games. No. Yeah. That Pac-Man, I think, actually was boxed with the console, and it was just, it was not good. A lot so, of the games need a lot of patience to play. They're almost unplayable. Yeah. In today's standards, definitely. It really just makes you sit back and appreciate how far video games have come in general, I mean, you look at Nintendo today, and it's motion-operated gameplay where you physically are a part of the game you're playing. Oh, when yeah. back in the days of the Atari 2600, you sat with a joystick and a singular button, and that was your physical connection to video games. Just absolutely crazy to me. I mean, I was in the era of the handheld controller with the standard D-pad and the four buttons on the right-hand side. You know, someone like me thinking about Atari and and everything in this documentary, it just for, this is the stuff that I heard of as being in the past, you know? Then I think about me growing up with video games, you know, much later, getting the Nintendo 64, the SNES, all the way up into the Dreamcast. It's funny to think that in the, the 90s, you know, the pre-internet, mid, early to mid 90s, we used to get our cheat codes and everything from magazines. Yeah. I mean, not only have the video games and the consoles evolved, I mean, the media surrounding these video games has certainly, you know, caught up by leaps and bounds. 
Oh, yeah. My friend Billy, he used to go to different convenience stores, and he would copy moves and cheats onto, like, notebook paper. Yeah. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go as far as to, like, tear out pages, which was good. But he would copy these down, and then they would come down to visit or sleep over during, like, school vacation or something. And we'd have all these pieces of paper. These were, like, our sacred documents. These were all of our <laughs> cheat codes we would need for the weekend, you know? We'd go out to, like, Blockbuster Video and rent the video game. And then we'd have all these cheat codes. It's so funny that now you can just do it with one click. But it was yeah. such an endeavor for us. I remember when you had to, like, call your best friend and you're like, oh, man, I can't get past this part. Like, how did you do it? And then they'd have to, like, painstakingly explain to you the amount of hours it took them to realize this little subtlety that advanced you in the video game. There was even a tip line. For $1.99, you could call, I think Nintendo and Sega even had their own. you call them and say, I'm kind of stuck on level 5 of Batman Forever. And they'd tell you, okay, well, this is what you got to do. It's pretty crazy. Oh, my God. So well, many kids awesome. must have been grounded. The, uh, <laughs> well, the one thing I remember, and this is going way back, for the Nintendo was a Game Genie by the awesome company called Galoob. Yep. It made a Game Genie. And basically, it was not even a, a cheat code, per se. It was just something that you plugged the Nintendo or Super Nintendo or Game Boy game into, and then you plug that whole big cartridge that it turned into, into the Nintendo, and basically you had a book that was probably 9,000 pages long Yes. that had codes for every single game that you could possibly imagine. Now what you would do is you would, when you start this thing up with the Nintendo game plugged into the Game Genie, it would bring up a, a Game Genie screen, like it would boot to the Game Genie, and then you would have to type in, I remember they were like, at least 20 character lines of just code into this thing. And each one of those lines, those 20 character lines would like, it basically cracked the game. That's all it did. Yeah. It like gave you invincibility that, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, it made you fly or whatever. And it wasn't anything that was built into the game initially that the developers wanted you to do. It was basically just cracking the hacking the code and changing the parameters of the game. And I remember just hours going through that stupid book. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. <laughs> no. I mean, it's not like you could type in with a keyboard. You had to select each letter with the controller, you know, <laughs> D-pad over to it, press the button, go to the next one. It was so mind-numbing. We would keep those games on for days just so we wouldn't <laughs> lose the code. Because it was yeah. such a pain to put the stupid, I think you could put like three or four codes in per game or something and it was just insane it's like at the end of an arcade game when you get to put in your initials but instead putting putting in the initials of your whole family yeah oh yeah that's what it was <laughs> that's what it was it was it was nuts yeah i remember seeing them up until the nintendo 64 had one and then that was pretty much it once the uh, once they moved to discs from cartridges there was really no way they could <laughs> no yeah once piggyback once the, the technology uh... Mm -hmm. Well, but, they also yeah. had a Nintendo DS version where you could put in, like, the little uh, SD card game into this other complete piece of hardware that would let you hack into the game. Like, if you were playing Pokemon, you could have, like, a million Master Balls or a million little Pokey Dollars. <laughs> yeah. I forget the exact terminology for the currency, but... Yeah. My friend Tommy had one, and I would just, like, beg him for it. He's like, wait, but... You could break your game with this, like, trying to get me not to borrow it. 
Yeah, it's it was an insane system. It was it was pretty innovative though for them to reroute or circumvent the programming in such a way that it wasn't illegal. Well, they got sued, but yeah, it was well, uh, they were yeah. able to sell the thing, millions of copies of the stupid thing. So, well, now um, in modern day, I, at least for PC gaming, it exists in modding. Yeah. Yeah. It well, was like an early version of that, pretty much. Basically, yeah. That's basically what it was. And the whole video game industry has gone so far from, you know, it's basically at this point, you could say within the next five, ten years, it's all going to be downloadable content, I would say. Unfortunately. Oh, I'd um, say even less time than that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's already that way with the, the PC market. And I see the consoles going that way, too, just being, you know, here's a game. If you want it, you don't have to buy physical media anymore. You just download it. And, um, consoles, um, I guarantee you, with within the next ten years, console gaming will become obsolete, or it'll morph morph into a, a different medium. Yeah, That's I mean, true. it'll yeah. be like what the Apple TV is, you know, for how the Apple TV replaced the Blu-ray player for the most yeah. part. Yeah, because I, I have on my Xbox, yeah, I have a whole bunch of games that I downloaded from the marketplace, and you know, it it's a good thing too for the small developers that are trying to. You know, the independent developers trying to get their small games into the marketplace, where normally they wouldn't. If if you're not with one of the big retailers or the big game design firms, forget it. Game design companies come and go. It is a very fickle industry. Yeah. But it's been good for, you know, small games like Limbo. Mm -hmm. Games like that normally would not be able to be played, but the Xbox Live Marketplace and, you know, what PlayStation has, it's been... Uh, in good in some ways and bad in some ways. Well, I'm just thinking about Steam, which is such a huge thing now for independent developers and, you know, big game developers also. But like Scott said, you could people can put out their beta version of their game and have it downloadable for the masses and charge, you know, 10 bucks or 5 bucks yeah. and, and get some capital out without having to produce any physical media and not have to worry about selling it to GameStop or Best Buy, you know, and just have it download the bulge people want to do it. they want it now they want it quick i guarantee you i have at 180 games in my steam library from this just the sales of digital content blows my mind and while we're talking about this i'd just like to bring some awareness to a site that actually does this and does charity work on the side called humble bundle where you can go there they've got like a a lot of 10 games where they sell these crazy titles this lot of titles for ten dollars or more you basically choose what you pay and what portion of your money goes to the company goes to charity and goes to a third party huh yeah yeah humble bundle is very cool that's nice yeah they're great all right so let's get right into this documentary this was directed and narrated by Zach Penn. He wrote the Avengers movie with Joss Whedon, and he also has story credits on such films as X2, X-Men United, which is great, X-Men The Last Stand, which is absolute garbage, and also Last Action Hero, which is great garbage. He also <laughs> wrote for some video games, including some terrible movie-related video games, which he mentions in this documentary, and unfortunately, I own some of these, like... X3, the game. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. All movie video game ports are just, just despicable. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's true. And it's funny. There's very rare hits. Like once in a while, you'll see a, a game based on a movie. But as we'll find out in this documentary, you know, it's because of time, time constraints. They have to rush it out to meet a certain deadline. And not everything is perfect. 
Plus, it's like you, if especially if it's a good movie that's being emulated in this other type of media, you have that nostalgia from when you watch the movie. You want the game to be as good or better. Yeah. Movies based on video games, the other way, it's not that much better. Nope. Aside from 1994's Street Fighter starring Raul Julia and Jean-Claude Van Damme. How about Tomb Raider? That's a good movie. Eh. I've never seen it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll go with Lily's review on that. It's fantastic. How dare you. <laughs> <laughs> this this documentary, actually, I was surprised. It, o- it only got an okay reception on IMDb. 6.9 out of 10. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. It was very mm-hmm. interesting. My one complaint about this documentary was sometimes I feel like the audio was like pre-recorded than the actual filming because sometimes like the over voice or the um ADR yeah I feel like sometimes it didn't match where it was as far as footage or like interview footage the um narrator was in a different place so my brain was constantly trying to follow like what the narrator was getting at, but the narrator didn't specifically say what they were getting at. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. That, wow. that I felt, kind of took away from it. Yeah, I didn't hear that at all, but I, you know, my brain's not as functional as yours, so. <laughs> oh, that's not true. <laughs> also, I wanted to ask you guys, growing up, did any of you hear about this legend, this urban legend, about the unsold E.T. cartridges being dumped in a New Mexico landfill? Uh, only from Sean recently, but not growing up. No? And I never heard about this either, really. I, I have played that E.T. game on the 2600 when I was younger. I remember it distinctly, but I think I played it for about four seconds before I changed it for, you know, something else. <laughs> anything so, else. Anything else. It wasn't wasn't good. I remember hearing about this or, or reading about it as an urban legend that all of the unsold cartridges when Atari went under were buried in this landfill, completely sealed over, and no one knows exactly where they're buried. I remember hearing that years and years ago. It's funny how these things become urban legends, and they really just start off from a very innocent type of thing and really expand to this huge conspiracy. So it was it was cool that they were able to unearth some things, um, which we'll talk about as we, we go on. Yeah, people glom onto these things. I think it's in human nature to want to believe in some, like, supernatural or mystical force, you know? May it be with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this takes place in Alamogordo, New Mexico. It's a small town population of 30,000, and it's near the first atomic test site. It's also notable as being the gravesite of Ham, the first chimpanzee that went into space, and it's also where the land speed record was broken on rocket sled. So a couple of little claims to fame. Yeah. They also mentioned in this uh, something that I had seen maybe a year or so ago. Conan O'Brien does a great segment on his show called Clueless Gamer, and he'll play different games that are brought to his attention by Aaron Blair, who's on the show. Conan, obviously, he plays it up, and he's very funny about it. I always get a kick out of it. And for some reason, they decided they were going to play E.T. the game, and they show a small clip of it at the beginning of this. Now, you watched the actual segment recently, Lily, right? Yes, I did. And I did watch it also after I watched the documentary. It was very funny. Conan, I think, is absolutely hilarious. I I always have loved Conan. But he he was basically just ripping on the Atari to rip on the Atari and where 
video games came from to make to make light of it. Yeah. He basically said it was all trash. Like, who wants to play these games? After reviewing notable, like, Xbox 360 games, like, I don't know. I think he reviewed, he's played some of the Call of Duties and things like that. Not that those are any particular works of art either, but compared to E.T., I mean... And you have an interesting point of view about this, Lily, because you came from a generation where you didn't have any games of less quality than a PlayStation, really. You know, that you, that's what you grew up with, PlayStation and Wii and the whole thing, and Xbox. Back in the early 80s, when Atari was very popular, this was like an amazing... These graphics on the Atari were, were amazing. Yeah. And the fact, like we mentioned before, that it could be... You could play something in your home that you would normally just play in a you know, an arcade or a, a bar or something it w- was an amazing thing. You could hook it to your TV and play it there. And even though the graphics are, to our standards today, horrible, that was the technology at the time. That was all, you know, that we had. That's exactly right. It was the, the concept of, of home computing. You know, you didn't have to be begging your parents for quarters to go stick in the machine to live for three minutes <laughs> playing Galaga or Dick Dug or something. And the the money that was saved. I mean, they these were expensive consoles at the time. These were hundreds of dollars. But you think about how much kids would spend at arcades. This was like an investment. You know, you were actually saving money. You were making sure that your kids were home in a safer place than with the rabble rousers at the arcade spending, you know, their rolls of quarters. And they had all these free games. Yeah. And uh, now the modern day arcade is just a as as a money sink as well, except for tickets to win absurd prizes. Like nobody, when someone today says they're going to the arcade, it's they're not going to the arcade to play one of those arcade games. It's not the purpose anymore. No. It's it's funny how things shift like that. Have fun trying to find an arcade now. Well, have you seen our local arcade recently? No. Our our local arcade now is brand new, built up, huge. But when I walked by and looked, there was nobody in there, and it was all, like you said, Lily, ticket machines. It's all for little kids to win tickets. Pretty much the, you know, future generations of skee-ball games. Pretty much, you know, throw a ball into this thing or, you know, hit this target with this beanbag, that type of game. And that's all arcades are now. There was, locally, one thing they were trying to do to bring back um, a modern type of arcade where... Mind you, this business didn't last very long, but you could pay to sit down and play console games oh, yeah. instead of arcade games, Yep. Um, which I thought was an interesting concept. Of course, it was extremely overpriced and didn't last very long, but an interesting concept nonetheless. Well, just like the first arcades, you have to offer people something that they can't get at home. That's true. And we're at the point now where we can get everything we had from an arcade at home, except for these, you know, stupid little ticket games for little kids to play and, you know, win a prize. Yeah, that's true. You can't necessarily, like, dunk a clown in a tank of water or get the same <laughs> satisfaction at home. <laughs> oh, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for 50 cents, I'm sure Sean will let us dunk him into the sink or the bathtub. At 50 cents? I'll do it for a quarter. Oh, all right. <laughs> Just going back to the Conan O'Brien segment we were talking about, I recommend, if you haven't seen it, check it out on YouTube. It's funny, and obviously Conan will be making fun of it and 
like Lily said, making light of it. But aside from the humor, it really helps you get a good sense of what this game was. They'll show you every element of it, as well as how difficult it was to play. It really was a hard game to play. Oh, yeah. It was, um... It's it's a genre of video game now. They call them roguelike video games where it's it's kind of a simpler 8-bit style except the gameplay is kind of hack and slash but the difficulty is extremely high. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's good to talk first about the creator of this game, which is Howard Scott Warshaw, who really should be a more well-known video game designer as it brings out in the documentary. He designs uh, a bunch of games for Atari. Most notably, probably the, I think the first one he did was Yar's Revenge, yep. which is a huge game for Atari. Um, and Most successful. Yeah, sold a million copies. It became the best-selling original game for the 2600. And he was very innovative. He was a real visionary when it came to game design. And they were talking... This documentary is cool because we do follow his life story, kind of a condensed life story in the middle of this hour as well. I didn't realize it came with an eight-page comic book. Yeah, well, but basically, this is the first video game where they made up a story to follow the action and yeah. to, to kind of give you know life to the characters, not just say, you know, you're, you have to, you know, fire this ball at this brick or whatever. It was really, you know, they gave it a life of its own, and he wrote all these different storylines behind the game. Oh yeah, RPG 1.0. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. it really was, and that. That really took off. You see all the Nintendo games after that had, you know, backstories in, in their manuals. You would read first to see what the story was and what's going on. Some of them are very funny, actually, because yeah. it's translated from Japanese, so it was very <laughs> interesting to read. <laughs> Especially the Mario games are extremely funny. But um, these were like these were like cutscenes, you know. This comic book was almost like what you get now between levels in video games. Yeah. Exactly. It's hard to think these games didn't have stories before then. It was, you know, just get the frog to the other side of the street. That's all you got to do. Yeah, it's... What makes a video game successful for me, at least when I'm playing them, is the level of immersion. The more I feel like... This, this might sound a little strange. The more I feel like I'm part of the game, the more I enjoy it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, another interesting part of this documentary is that we're going to follow Zach Penn, the director and narrator, and his adventures in this endeavor to find these buried, so-called buried E.T. cartridges with a man named Joe Lewandowski, and he's the proclaimed garbage guru of Alamo Gordo. And he was able, he's been working for three years to use anything he could find, like old newspaper photos anything, maps of the landfill, to pinpoint exactly where these things are buried. And he's almost like an amateur archaeologist in that sense. So, I have to wonder how this guy got the title of Garbage Guru <laughs> I think of that particular it, town. It's self-appointed. Yeah, I think he gave it to himself. <laughs> and well-deserved, too. I mean, the guy did a lot of homework. You looked, in fact, they make the comparison in the documentary. It's almost like Indiana Jones trying to pinpoint exactly where something is yeah awful lot of work to do to uncover these games well he's very fortunate that they had some kind of decent record unfortunately they didn't say back in 1983 when this is buried where exactly the guitar dumping grounds were but they no. they gave him a general area and you know showed them documentary by him using photos that were taken and actually doing 
kind of forensics on the angle of the, the picture that the photographer took of the pit to find out where it was in comparison to other background buildings and that sort of thing. Had yeah. a pretty good, it was still, I forgot the exact um, number, but it was still a fair size area they had to go through to do core samples to find out whereabouts they were. Oh, it's huge, yeah. I mean, this was just desert. Yeah, it's it's in the desert, and you gotta think, too, it was interesting, I thought, that the Atari garbage, the, the uh, Atari landfill, was at the very bottom of this pit, and it was covered by concrete, and then more garbage from around that time, 1980, September 1983, October 1983, was dumped on top of it. Yeah. So it's not like these things were just on the surface and you could walk around and kick up a Atari cartridge. They were way underground. 28 feet, I believe. Yeah, so this is not, and covered by concrete, so not easy to get to. And, you know, he had to go through all sorts of red tape to get permission to even try to dig this stuff up. Because it's town property. Yeah, the yeah. environmentalists were very concerned that digging up this landfill could then expose the community to who knows what. You know, lead, mercury, all kinds of hazardous waste could then be in the air. Yeah, and that's a valid concern, you know, especially since re obviously good records weren't taken no. of what was dumped there, and I'm sure EPA regulations weren't as, you know, stringent as they are now. It could have been anything Yeah, that was dumped on top of the Atari cartridges. And you probably had a lot of people who are saying, why bother digging up this stuff? But Yeah, but they don't they don't get it. Those are the kind of people who wouldn't watch this uh, documentary. <laughs> yeah. This story has been around since it happened it's just grown and grown as an urban legend and it really is a big part of video game history it's a big part of pop culture in general it's very important to um american society it's interesting too looking back at the atari side of things when i started talking about in the beginning of the documentary the atari company itself mm -hmm. and it really is the start of what is silicon valley the the attitudes they had at Atari back in the early eighties. Yeah, which is in, insane. Yeah, their policy. <laughs> oh man, yeah, they work hard and play hard. They basically had these kids who were good at what they did, designing video games. Who walked in and you know they weren't IBM pencil pushing, you know, suit wearing executives. They were just kids in jeans and shorts and. They, they came in, did what they want. They did drugs on premises without anybody saying anything. It's, they had keggers if they met quotas. Yep. <laughs> one, one thing that was overlooked, it was mentioned, but it was kind of overlooked in the uh, documentary that some people might not know, is Atari is where Steve Jobs got his start. That's basically yep. who he worked for first. And he was responsible, and uh, you know Steve Jobs was such a pig that even by Atari standards he was you know disgusting, but... Um, okay. <laughs> hey, he was. He, he was. He, you know, was notorious for not bathing, and just kind of leaving a funk around him. But anyway, <laughs> he's responsible. Him and Steve Wozniak for the game Breakout, which is very popular. I had that game, yep. And that that was their their game. And it was interesting. And this is a side story about that. Basically, Steve Jobs was offered by Atari. I think it was like five thousand dollars to make. Uh, breakout with a certain amount of time, only using a certain amount of chips on the on the game, to, so to save money and to save you know space. Mm -hmm. And Steve Jobs basically said, "Yeah, I can do it, and we could do it within a month or whatever the time frame was." And he went back to Steve Wozniak and 
uh, said, you know, Atari wants to do this game. Can you do it? And I'll give you like four hundred dollars. They or he told them they offer them like eight hundred dollars or seven hundred dollars or something, and he would split it with them if he could do it. So basically, Steve Jobs not an early example of his ruthlessness as a businessman, basically ripping off Steve Wozniak, <laughs> took taking the the lion's share of the uh, money for the the game that Steve Wozniak did all the work on. And basically ripping off, giving him 300 bucks or so just to, to do this. And Steve Wozniak was none the wiser for many years. Wow. That he was, you know, ripped off. And he was disappointed. I read his biography and he said he was very, more, not about the money so much, but about how Steve Jobs would, you know, betray him. And, uh, you know, just lie to him blatantly about this. Pretty interesting that these figures really got a start at this video game company. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously given a very condensed history here. They're trying to cover the rise and fall of Atari, the life and career of Howard Scott Warshaw, as well as this legend of the buried E.T. cartridges. So there's obviously a lot of details that are going to be left out. But just going back to the beginning of Atari, we see a lot of Nolan Bushnell in this documentary. He's the man, the founder that created Atari. And we're given some background. I thought it was interesting that while he went to college, he worked summers at an amusement park. And he was given, through that, some very unique insight into the coin-operated game business. And that's really, really where he got the idea to use his engineering skills to create some very compelling games that kids would want to play over and over again. Yeah. They began working on Pong, and they were saying by the end of 1972, they made $3.5 million then 19 million, then 35 million. It just grew exponentially. Yeah, that's insane. I, everybody had Pong from all the stories I hear. I mean, even my stepdad, who was like, yeah, I didn't really have any of the old consoles, but I had Pong, you know? Yeah. Pong was huge, yeah. That was yeah. the start. And it was funny, after they expanded so much, they decided that they needed to find a company to sell to. And they... They wanted to expand in the home console market, and they offered to sell to Warner Communications. And they called this guy Manny Gerard, who's also in this documentary quite a bit. He was the former co-chief operating officer at Warner. Like he says in the documentary, when he heard, he said yes. And from there, they introduced the 2600 in 1977 with nine cartridges. Yeah. Another interesting point, they mentioned that they t actually turned the television into what was a passive medium into an active medium. And that was just revolutionary. It changed home entertainment forever. And something I didn't really think about until they brought it up, it really had a significant role in the bringing about the computer age. Oh, yeah. It made that sort of idea tangible for a lot of people. I mean, I'm going to guess that before this, I, I always hear stories about the, oh, there were computers that took up whole rooms back <laughs> in my day just to do one calculation and took five hours. But if, if people can make video games accessible on a television, why can't they bring the same computing power into something more condensed and compact that can be utilized right from a desk or an office or something of the sort? Yeah. But I definitely think it helped sell the idea of a home computer, which was not something in 1982 that was common at all. It's very expensive still for anything for, you know, and that's where Apple, again, Steve Jobs, 
decided to come out with a, a home computer that would be affordable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Atari definitely had getting that mindset people's minds that they didn't have to necessarily leave their house to get this entertainment. Yeah, completely unthought of before this. So they kind of jump around at this point in the documentary. Like Sean brought out, we inter are introduced to Howard Scott Warshaw and the making of Yar's Revenge, which I didn't realize Yar was Ray spelt backwards. And that it was, was kind of funny. Yeah. homage to the CEO of Atari, Ray Kasser or Kassar. And revenge was just added as kind of a compelling action word. <laughs> so this guy, Warshaw, just was knocking it out of the park left and right. And Atari was now taking in $375 million and was the fastest growing company in American history. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's incredible. So then we follow in the documentary that all these people now are going to make this pilgrimage to the site. They were finally given uh, okay from the town to dig at the landfill, and a bunch of different people were going to attend this unearthing if, in fact, they did find anything. So Warshaw was going to be one of them, as well as Ernest Klein. He is the author of a novel called Ready Player One. Have you guys ever heard of it before? Never. I've heard of it, but I've never experienced it. I've heard good things about it, actually. It's kind of basically what if Willy Wonka was a guy that gave out his prizes inside of this virtual world that you have to enter. And it's, from what I hear, it's got all kinds of old references, you know, from the 80s and the 90s, and supposedly pretty cool. One thing that's kind of interesting that they don't mention, as of March 25th, 2015... Guess who's attached to direct the film adaptation of Ready Player One? Steven Spielberg. That's right, the director of E.T. So, we'll see what happens. Yeah. As we've seen in this documentary, getting Steven Spielberg's okay on things isn't always the best. Yeah. <laughs> also, one very interesting thing about Ernest Klein is what he drives to New Mexico in this documentary. A DeLorean. A very nice DeLorean. And E.T. sitting in the passenger seat. Yes. <laughs> I forget, who did he pick that up from? I know before he left on his trip, he picked it up from somebody who was... Um... George R.R. R. Martin, the oh, yeah, writer yeah, of yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah he, he borrowed it. He borrowed the DeLorean. <laughs> I guess all these writers are buds. Yeah. Very cool car. I always wish I had one. But it's definitely an 80s car. Yeah. The DeLorean. And he has a flux capacitor. I don't know if you noticed yeah, that. Yeah, I did notice that. Yeah. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, you... It. You gotta, if you're gonna have a DeLorean, you gotta have a flux capacitor. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Another interesting point they bring out in this documentary is about how at this time, licensing movie properties for video games was just becoming more and more popular, and Steven Spielberg had Howard Scott Warshaw create the Raiders of the Lost Ark game for the Atari 2600, and it was just this huge commercial success. I never played it, but I heard it was great. Have you guys ever played it? I think I've played it before. I think it is pretty fun. I, I don't really recall much about it, but it, you know, it was almost like a... Um, like a Legend like, of Zelda type of thing? Yeah, I, I, I think Pitfall for some reason. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just thinking of Pitfall. Oh, yeah, Pitfall but, is um, a great game. It was kind of like that, if I remember correctly. It was, it was good. I remember it being good. Yeah, I've never, I've never played it before. I unfortunately haven't really gotten a chance to play any of the uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred games in their Atari Twenty Six Hundred ports. Yeah. I may have played like some newer, like revamps of old coin-op games, but not straight from the console 
<laughs> and it's unfortunate because Howard Scott Warshaw was coming off the success of the Indiana Jones game. It had the blessing of Steven Spielberg when they pegged him to make the E.T. game, which is E.T. at this time, I remember, was huge yeah. when it came out, I believe in 1982. It was all the rage. It was everything was E.T., E.T., E.T. So it was a natural progression, they thought, to make a game especially after the Raiders game was so successful. Um, well, even before that, the Atari had to secure the rights to E.T. Yeah. Which, that was a whole interesting story in and of itself, because Steve Ross, the CEO of Warner, he wanted, he secretly wanted Spielberg to come be a director for his studio. So he thought he was going to, like, woo him by buying the rights to his game. And so they offered $22 million yeah. for the rights to make E.T. the game. Which is so ridiculous. I mean... Horrible. Horrible. Yeah. And then they that's when Warshaw was approached, you know, would you want to create this game in five weeks? And, you know, he calls it in the documentary hubris. You know, he was riding high on all these commercial successes and was like, yeah, I could do it. And that's for any game. Even, I mean, there was a lot that went into creating one of these games. I, yeah, I never five did to six myself. months. Yeah, it was... It was very intensive. I mean, in some ways, probably even more intensive than some of the games that come out now in, in certain ways, because it was all code. It was all, you know, starting from scratch and with technology that was really, you know, substandard. Not that I know too much about it, but currently you need to write code that utilizes a game engine, and I don't believe that there were any sort of game engines, graphics engines, back in 1980. While you did it all from scratch, you built all the mechanics in your coding for each individual game. That's right. That's pretty much what it was, yeah. So for him to make this game in five and a half weeks was really an amazing feat. Oh, huge. He wouldn't finish anything in that amount of time. And not everybody says that it is such a terrible game, you know? No. I've read online people have said, oh, you know, like, I wasted hours of my childhood playing this game just because it was hard doesn't mean it was bad. I feel like Atari was already setting itself up for failure at this stage of the game. And it was almost coincidental with the release of this game that they went under. Well, you know, the problem was it sold a lot of copies initially, E.T., right. like the documentary mentioned, but most of them were returned, too. So that was the problem. Well, they produced $4 million, which was amazing. Yeah, a huge amount. Yeah, that's crazy. Like you said, Warshaw met with Steven Spielberg, and he proposed his idea for the game. Like, Yar's Revenge was completely innovative, and he had big dreams for this game. And not that it really had anything to do with E.T., but he had envisioned that this game would take place in a giant, like, three-dimensional cube-shaped world. Mm-hmm. And he was a guy that really put a lot of emphasis in creating emotions within the character interactions, as limited as they were, obviously, so limited by the technology. But he had all these really out-there concepts that he made work. I just thought it was funny, Steven Spielberg's reaction to his concept... Yeah, why can't you just make it like Pac-Man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no idea, no idea. He ended up creating the game. Atari gave it full support and created four million copies of this cartridge. 
It's absolutely insane. And I mean, and Spielberg said that he had test played this game in an interview and that it was, you know, his favorite game. <laughs> they had footage of it too, yeah. Yeah. Which it was horrible. Such a liar. <laughs> Which of course or... he's gonna say, yeah. I mean, it's, he's not gonna say the game stunk. You know, no. it's, it's he probably didn't know what he was doing. You know, honestly, if he even played no, it, yeah. If he even played it, you know. He probably just put it in and looked at it and was like, "Yep, no, oh, that looks like ET." Which it doesn't. <laughs> it's it's green. It's so yeah, strange when you actually see this game. That's why I recommend checking out the Conan O'Brien Clueless Gamer segment, just so you can see what this game actually looked like. I'm sure there's other YouTube videos as well. Oh yeah, there's tons of gameplay footage on YouTube. So yeah, he basically had five weeks, and he could not miss the Christmas window. This is when they had to strike. They referred to it here as the $22 million bet, and it actually went to market Christmas 1982. Yep, it did get out. And honestly, looking at the game itself, you know, well, first, looking at the marketing of the game, they really pushed this game quite a bit. They showed oh, some yeah. of the commercials that Atari put out around that, that Christmas season of 82, and they were making this thing up to be the best thing ever made. Again, <laughs> really jumping on the whole E.T. bandwagon and, and putting characters from the movies and, you know, E.T. himself in the commercials for E.T., the Atari game. So it was... People were really thinking it was going to be quite an, an awesome game when it came out. Yeah, the, the kid looking into the garage of the glowing light and the cartridge gets thrown at the kid. Oh, E.T. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it was something that every kid was going to want to have that Christmas. One of the people in the documentary mentions, yeah, like he thought he was so special because he had it. And then he found out that all the kids got it for Christmas. Like everybody had this game. Yeah, it wasn't anything mm -hmm. special. But then all the negative reviews started to come in. I think... What enhanced the negativity of this game was the hype. Because so often, a game that's good, but was before made out to be great, turns out to be just subpar, because everyone was expecting so much from it. Oh yeah. It was a total phantom menace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really destroyed the career of, of Howard Scott Warshaw. Like, he never yeah. recovered yeah. from this, and obviously Atari never recovered from this. And like I mentioned, he should have been one of the big names of video game history, and he's, he's not, unfortunately. He's not known as one of the big designers. And actually totally changed career paths after this. Yeah. Got totally away from video games, probably grew up a little bit, which is, you know, I'm glad he's happy what he does, but it's unfortunate that it ruined his career. Yeah, he went on to do a little real estate, but I guess he found that unfulfilling. And finally, at least he's happy in his life, he says. He's now a licensed psychotherapist in California. Yes. Which makes sense. Would, definitely. <laughs> to say that E.T. single-handedly brought the fall of Atari to pin it all on this one poor guy, I feel is a little ridiculous. It, it's oh, really yeah. not. It's, it's just very coincidental that this came out right around the time of the crash. And it didn't really forced a crash. I think it was a bunch of factors that just happened around the same time. Didn't help things, of course, but no. I think it was inevitable any way you look at it. And uh, If you look at the, the design of the game, it's actually not a bad idea. I mean, it's the, the story is good. You have to collect these pieces of telephone. ETS to run around doing that and being chased by things. It just was very hard. 
and I, people complained about the pits they would fall in constantly <laughs> and have to get out of. And one thing I noticed about the game that was mentioned was that it really is probably one of the first references you see of Easter eggs in the game. Yeah, that was interesting. Oh, um, yeah. Where basically E.T. would grow this thing. Geranium. Like, geranium in the pit, which I haven't seen E.T. in probably since it came out. And would turn into different things uh, like aliens from Yard's Revenge and something from Raiders. So it turned into Indiana Jones, yeah. Indiana Jones. So I thought that was really cool that he threw these these little secrets in there to you know kind of give homage to his other games. Yeah, again, this guy was good at what he did. You know, I'll design this game, and hey, I'll even throw in references to my other past successes. Yeah. And I liked, as was pointed out early in this documentary, truly the great irony of this game is that its major flaw was E.T. falling into pits, and that's exactly where these games ended up. Yeah, yeah, it's probably (laughs) the biggest irony. But Um, also, like, Manny Gerard, the guy from Warner, as he brought out... It was complete market saturation. You know, if you come out with one product, you sell it to everybody, you're not going to repeat those sales numbers. You have to expand your business or evolve your business. This is what all the game systems are going through all the time, all the game companies. It's just that you can't sustain those numbers. There's no way. Yeah, yep. And that's what they learned. Absolutely not. So then in the documentary, we see that it's April 25th, 2014, and they're finally going to begin excavation they have a whole crew they have all the construction equipment uh, Ernest Klein arrives in his DeLorean and uh his license plate was anorak did you guys catch that I did do you know what an anorak is no idea it's a small flightless bird from the uh, Mediterranean islands correct yep very good that's it also it's uh, <laughs> actually it's British slang for a person that has a very strong interest perhaps obsessive, in niche subjects. Yeah, synonymous with a nerd or a geek. That's offensive, but okay. <laughs> I, um, just to uh, go off on a little side tangent here, I really liked how he said I something to the effect of he, he doesn't really believe in the term nerd or geek. It's just people who are branded as that are very passionate about one specific thing, and he likes people who like things, you know? Mm-hmm. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, totally agree. And whatever you want to call them, nerds or geeks or whatever, there was tons of spectators starting to line up around this site. That was very surprising to me, how many people actually showed up for this. I wouldn't think that would get nearly this attention that it did. All from all over the place. One guy mentioned that he drove like 24 hours at least, and even like news outlets were there, local news, but like IGN was there to cover it live. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a quite an event. I thought it was going to be a very solemn type of thing, and it turned out to be a real circus, really. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty funny. I still think this is the guy planted this thing where during the excavation they found uh, a rubber <laughs> part of a, a Atari joystick. Yeah, the top of the joystick. And they were very excited about that, and they are oh, I found this, and interviewing the guy. I think it was a plant. I, you think so? Yeah. I, <laughs> by the guy. I don't think it was anybody who sponsored it. I think it was just he threw it down the ground and said, oh, look, I found. <laughs> I don't know. Well, his story was, well, I was walking to the bathroom and I found this. Yeah. Like, I'd, I'd come up with something a little better than that. I don't buy it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was going to take a dump and I found a piece of the stuff you're looking for. I thought it was interesting, though, before they even started this, to find the exact location, 
don't know if you guys know this, but they did those core samples yeah. of, of the uh, area, and one of the major finds, they did a bunch of them, was a, a newspaper article or a newspaper from that time frame, September of uh, 83. And that's how they're able to pin down, that's where the, or October of 83, where, where that junk, that garbage was. And that's why they started basically digging right there. Yeah, pretty amazing how they were able to do that. Now, of course, nowadays, as they mentioned, all of these plots in the landfill are clearly marked, you know, they're mapped out. So if you want to know what was dumped, when it was dumped, because of, you know, ecological concerns, they can always make sure they know. But back then, yeah, they just had to kind of hunt and peck and go by whatever. I think a Donnie and Marie poster was unearthed at one point. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty funny. <laughs> and so, yeah, they, it took these, what do they call them, punk archaeologists? Yeah. You know, kind of like pop culture Indiana Jones types. Yeah. So, yeah, the next day, April 26, 2014, that's the extraction. They were able to find an area which they were pretty confident there was going to be their best shot at finding something. As they were digging, the sandstorms were picking up. It was crazy. I, I was just thinking about the DeLorean. Never mind the people. I was like, oh, that poor DeLorean. Yeah, I should, shouldn't oh, have brought yeah, that. I, know. that was, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> but they were dumping things, and obviously this is why they think the joystick top was found near the Porta Johns, because the, the winds were picking up, so anything that was kind of being dumped might have been blown out. But sure enough, they actually did find an ET cartridge in its box intact, and I was very surprised to see how little it actually changed from its original form yeah i think you, you gotta think too that's part of that was the uh the desert environment it was in mm -hmm. here in the northeast if that stuff was buried it would have been i think destroyed i don't think it would have been able to find much of anything just because of the environment dry most of the year no moisture really to destroy things as, as easily it's pretty amazing and it shows you how durable things were made back then it could probably be played yeah. Yeah, they actually auctioned off. So the actual numbers were they found 1,300 cartridges, which included copies of E.T., but also copies of other Atari video games. And they kept some for um, preservation purposes. Mm -hmm. And they auctioned off the remaining to raise money for a museum type of deal, like a display. Where it should be, definitely. At least some of these. Yeah. Yeah, so E.T. basically totaled about 10% of what they found. It was far short of the millions that was in this urban legend. And really the, the fact that the urban part, the biggest part of the urban legend was that E.T. was the only game, again, that was buried there. And they, they dumped it out of shame or out of, you know, they, it's over inventory of just E.T. Mm -hmm. So like you said, it's only 10% of the find. So it really, they mentioned, was just a... An inventory dump from Atari at that time when they were having issues and they had too much of everything. Yars Revenge and the Good Sellers Breakout all included and dumped everything. Some of them happened to be E.T. Yeah. And as Zach Penn puts it, at the time it was just the most practical solution. Yeah. You know, you couldn't sell these yep. things and you couldn't hold on to them. So what it's, are you going to do? It's probably more cost efficient instead of storing them in you know some warehouse just to chuck them. Yeah. And, you know, write it off, basically. So just as predicted, at the right place and the right depth, these video games were found. So the legend of the Atari burial all these years was true, in part. Yeah. And Howard Scott Warshaw was actually on scene. He was one of the people there. And he was very emotional when they started to find the Atari cartridges. 
We have to imagine he's lived with this shame for all of his life that he has made in five weeks the most terrible um, work in failed weeks of his life to make this horrible, horrible game that everybody hates and to see it dug out of a pit that's it's been sitting there for the past 30 years. Yeah. I, I can't imagine how that feels. Oh, I know. It's like the literal metaphor of repressed bad memories, you know? Yeah. Here's everything coming <laughs> back up to the surface. Yeah, he called it the, the hardest five weeks of his life. He was really in tears and, and couldn't speak. Like Lily said, it's a shame that this guy that created so many great games, so many great successes, he's only remembered for this one failure, which even really was entirely his fault. He doesn't directly blame Steven Spielberg. But you could tell there was a little animosity there. I don't think it was his fault at all, really. I mean, he did what he was paid to do. You know, it's I think it's a a classic example of just upper management and bad timing being at fault for this one. He's almost like the Bill Buckner of video games. He you know, is. Just successful guy, just remembered for one small blunder. Yep. Well, I shouldn't say small blunder. One blunder. <laughs> yep, that's true. But there, I didn't realize there was a video game Hall of Fame, but there is, and he's still not in it, which is a shame, you would think. Which is, yeah, very, very horrible. He should be put in that immediately. Yeah, get him in if anyone listening holds any sway in that process. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the documentary ends with a nice homage to Raiders of the Lost Ark, as the cartridges that were recovered are packed into boxes and stored amongst many others in this packed warehouse. I thought that was pretty funny. And owned by the town, so they had, you know, total rights to sell them off and do the auctions and do whatever they were going to do with them, so I thought that was interesting. I like how the town officials said, yeah, come to our city, we'll bury your game. Yeah. (laughs) I I thought thought it was very fun in the beginning how they were against the whole idea of digging this up, and they're like, well, I don't know if we should do this, and in true politician fashion, as soon as something is discovered, oh yeah, we own that, so we're going to, you know, make profit (laughs) off that, and we... They started caring about it an awful lot after uh, it came to fruition. Yeah, exactly. So what are your thoughts upon watching this documentary? What did you guys think? For me, I think I was taken aback knowing that I will be entering this industry in the next few years. The advances that it's made and and just urban myths in general and how out of proportion they can be blown. I mean, this urban legend was true, but it wasn't true at the same time. It's not like there were millions of copies of this uh, terrible game buried in this landfill. And it just struck me as odd that this was something that people clung to and thought was interesting. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) And that makes me sad, honestly. (laughs) Because it was such a huge part of, I know, my childhood. These video games in general and... It was kind of sad to see them unearthed, honestly. I can't say why. It just was. It was sad. <laughs> Sean is emotionally touched uh, yeah, by it. Yeah, I was. I was emotionally, <laughs> emotionally touched by it. I, you know, because it, it's part of your your childhood disappearing, basically. Even though it was brought up, I, I guess I was happy that people cared so much about these cartridges. I didn't think it would get the reception that it did when they unearthed these things. People were playing the games on site. Yeah. They had, like, these portable setups. It was so funny. That makes me happy, but it also makes me sad that Lily's generation doesn't know these things and doesn't appreciate these video games like we did because it's all we had. Yeah. 
and just nostalgic is what it makes me, I guess. But like I said earlier, you know, I'm I'm 10 years behind gaming-wise, so I'm playing this Atari 2600. I'm having the experience that children probably over 10 years before me had, and just, uh, I loved those games so much. They were a big part of my childhood, even though my peers did not share the same experience. My friends would come over and we would, you know, stay up all night playing Air and Sea Battle or Berserk, you know, and just... Uh, so many different game modes too that was another thing is there would be like 30 game modes that you could do oh, and yeah. it, each game mode would adjust how fast ships go some had uh steerable bullets which were so amazing to even think that they were these guys were able to program all these different things just love those games which yeah. now when you look at i mean you could probably fit you know thousands on your phone like nothing and people would hate them but well back then like you said that's all we had I think it's interesting. I saw this. I could find it sometimes, especially during the holidays. I know Best Buy was selling it. Not to give Best Buy any commercials here. Um, but I think you can buy them <laughs> online, too, if you go to Amazon or something. But Atari, I think it's actually the Atari company, makes a retro version of the 2600 that looks like a 2600, minus, I think, the, the game slot. Has the paddles, has everything that the original one came with. But it has all these games preloaded onto it now. Yes. Onto a hard drive or onto something that's built into this 2600 casing. So you could take this thing, hook it to your TV, instead of having you know have 20 million cartridges laying around, you could have all of your games right there and play it like you were used to playing it. Yeah, that for about 30 bucks. Cool. For about 30 bucks, yeah. Yeah, pretty great. Which I think is pretty cool. That I always want to pick one of those up and give it a whirl. That actually doesn't sound like a half bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> It's a great console, and the games were, were great. You know, it's fun to look back and see how far things have come in a relatively short period of time, too. Yeah, I guess when you think about the history as a whole, it's just a small snippet. It's like a second in the uh, eyes of the world. Yeah. I enjoyed this documentary. I, I thought it was uh, something, like I said, that I've heard about before, and I kind of followed the news stories when it actually happened, so it was kind of nice to actually see it all being put together in this form. And I thought it was done pretty well. I Some people were disappointed, but I guess if you hadn't heard what they actually did find, I could see how you kind of come into it and go, oh, well, I guess it wasn't exactly all it was cracked up to be. But I thought it was very interesting. I didn't expect to get so many personal stories of, you know, creators and designers, and I thought that really added a lot more to it than just this story about the dig. But I thought it was put together very well, and I'd be interested in seeing other documentaries in this series. What what documentaries would you guys like to see be covered in this series? Um, as far as covering gaming myths or consoles in general and history? I think this is going to cover anything video game related. Ooh. The Signal to Noise series. Man, that's really tough. I guess I would really like to see something that covers the Nintendo-Sega battle shortly after the Atari 2600 goes under. Yeah. I guess it's not so shortly, but, you know. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, Nintendo pretty much won that war. Yeah. It's so weird to see Sonic the Hedgehog and Mario together on the same game. Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, it's just like, if you kids only knew you had to pick sides back in my day. <laughs> Sean, what about you? Are there anyth anything you would like to see covered in this documentary series? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would like to see, honestly, 
the if they would even cover it the pc early pc gaming phenomenon of the early 80s late 70s oh yeah yeah there's um, definitely a lot to cover from because that that's really my forte i guess you could say i was i was played of course nintendo and consoles but i was really into the uh the zorks and the uh, Sierra game. Sierra would be a great documentary, I think, to do. Just on the Sierra company itself. Mm-hmm. And the games. Because that was like the Nintendo of the, the PC world. for Or the Atari of the PC world, I guess you could say. In the mid-80s, uh, early 90s. So that would be interesting to me. I think I should do that. I personally would love to see a Tetris documentary. <laughs> I love that game. And there's so much interesting history there. And... Even though it's just kind of a game that was around the early 90s, late 80s, it still has a huge following today. There's competitions. There's some incredible YouTube videos of people playing it almost blindly and uh, incredible quickness. Definitely uh, something interesting to explore. And though that music is still uh, enduring. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for it. (laughs) Well, I have one final question for you guys. Do you actually own a copy of E.T. the game? No. (laughs) Um, Yes, but it's buried somewhere in my backyard. Oh, you have your own dig to do. Sure, I'm not not digging it up, though. (laughs) It's remaining back there. (laughs) Well, I'm no... Oprah or Ellen, I would tell you to look under your seats, but I actually did purchase a copy of E.T. the Game cartridge for you guys. Oh my god, so, really? Yeah, of course, poor planning on my part, like I said, uh, I'm no member of Harpo Studios by any stretch, but they are en route to us, they are in the mail on our way, but uh, I thought it would be nice for all of us to own a little piece of video game history now, having a greater appreciation for all that went into that game, so... I will be making sure that you guys get that in the next few days. How many did you buy? One for each of us. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Uh, press, the best dollar fifty you ever spent. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I will. I will display it proudly in, next to my computer here. <laughs> and they are in playable condition, so if you ever come across a twenty six hundred, yeah, enjoy. Wow. That's awesome. I'm excited now. You can frame it now. I will. (laughs) Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, SNES cheat codes, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. You guys have anything you want to plug? Sure. Uh, I've got a YouTube channel that has a lot to do with gaming, what we've been talking about this entire podcast. Um, I do Let's Plays, I crack silly jokes. Uh, you can find me, Lilliputian22, and the same handle on Twitter. Yes, I'd like to plug uh, this week the Cape Cod Mini Maker Fair, which will be taking place on Saturday, May 30th, 2015, at Cape Cod Community College. So if you're somewhere overseas, you probably won't be able to come to this. But if you're in the general New England, Boston, Cape Cod, uh, New England area, take a ride out. Enjoy Cape Cod for the weekend. Mini Maker Fair is going to have lots of different projects, such as things with soldering and Raspberry Pis and 
all sorts of projects, drones. Um, I'm reading from their website right now. All sorts of stuff. Robots, robotics, steampunk, all sorts of creative things people on Cape Cod have done. And so I really recommend it. I will be there. And so will Lily. And so will Scott. Yes. <laughs> and some other people will be displaying our wares. Can you explain what your project is, or is that still top secret? No, I'm doing a couple of Raspberry Pi projects. If you don't know what the Raspberry Pi is, Google it. P-I, not P-I-E. You get a whole different thing with Raspberry P-I-E. Basically a microcomputer. I'm doing a project called a, one's called a pirate box using a Raspberry Pi, which you can also Google. It's very similar to a library box. And I'm doing a Raspberry Pirate Radio, um, which will be broadcasting on site episodes of Hitting Play, the podcast. <laughs> over FM. Yeah, low frequency FM. Yeah, very in the, in the legal range. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty range. much. For um, my project, I took a Raspberry Pi and made it into an old school gaming emulator. So it emulates Genesis games, NES games, SNES games, Neo Geo, basically anything you can think of. I don't think Atari, though, does it? <laughs> besides, besides, she doesn't do Atari for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you can come and play me in Mario Kart. So that will be and fun. Tell them what you You're get. On. Tell them what you win if you if you beat Elaine Mario Kart. Satisfaction and a printed out certificate. She has printed these out. There's about oh, nice. four hundred of them. Oh wow! Oh, you expect to get beat a lot. She's then. expecting to lose quite a bit. <laughs> I printed out like 20. So. You can also <laughs> get your picture case. taken, Lily, with the certificate if you win. And she'll make a sour face. And we'll also do an autograph signing session for Hitting Play. <laughs> yeah. Um, come meet us. <laughs> we'll sign whatever you want. Sean take... will sign your touchscreen. I will sign your touchscreen. I will sign anything you want. Basically, well, for a reason. I'm not signing anatomy. I'm sorry. There you go. That's where I start. That's where I draw the line. <laughs> Wait, you're gonna draw the draw a line? I will draw a line inside my name on the line. Yes, on the anatomy. Oh boy. With with a sharpie. So enjoy Sean's last and only appearance at the Cape Cod Maker Fair. Hey, it's fantastic. They love me there. So we will be there. Come look for our booth. Listen to Hitting Play. Play Lily. Stare at us for a few hours. It's ten to four, Saturday, May thirtieth, Cape Cod Community College. And the website is Cape Cod Maker. Fair, which is F-A-I-R-E dot com. The old English spelling of the word fair. Check it out. Very nice. I am on Twitter. My name there is MC and Friends. I am also on Vine. My name is MC and Friends there as well. I do little flip page cartoons and animations and try to make them humorous. You can check my stuff out there. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It definitely helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. And we try to be creative with those. We will definitely make something out of it. You can also tap to rate us five stars right there on our iTunes page. You can do it on your phone or on your mobile device, and uh, it's just one simple tap or click. And anything you can do, we definitely are appreciative. Well, we have been Lily, Sean, and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Good night.